Hello, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Andrew Thomas. Our guest today is Jeff Charlotte for a conversation on his collection of essays, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, just published on March 21st by Norton. Jeff Charlotte is the New York Times bestselling author or editor of eight books, including The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, adapted into a Netflix documentary series, and This Brilliant Darkness. His reporting on LGBTQ plus rights around the world has received the National Magazine Award, the Molly Evans Prize, and Outright International's Outspoken Award. His writing and photography have appeared in many publications, including Vanity Fair, for which he is a contributing editor, the New York Times Magazine, GQ, Esquire, Harper's, and VQR, for which he is an editor at large. He is the Frederick Sessions Beebe 35 professor in the art of writing at Dartmouth College. He lives in the woods with many animals. The Undertow is an incisive and at times foreboding collection. It is made up of 10 interrelated essays that map the social, cultural, and religious geographies of the contemporary United States. The collection takes the killing of Ashley Babbitt as its through line. Babbitt was the pro-Trump insurrectionist shot and killed by a Capitol Police officer on January 6, 2021, who has since been turned into a far-right martyr. Across these essays, Charlotte tracks the volatile combination of Christian evangelicalism and far-right paranoia that is fueled by conspiracy-laden social media platforms. On top of these trends, Charlotte also discusses the eschatological belief in regeneration and redemption through violence. Traveling across the United States, from Sacramento to Nevada, from Nebraska to Wisconsin, from Trump rallies to fundamentalist warrior Jesus megachurches and big tent revivals, to the front porches and kitchens of Confederate and Gadsden flag-waving folks, Charlotte's essays have a fever dream momentum. He reveals how an unfulfillable promise of whiteness offered to people of color willing to collaborate with white supremacy very well may be the next American contribution to fascism. A masterful blending of journalistic reporting, essay, and memoir, The Undertow is a book written from the middle of something, a season of coming apart. It is a book of stories of difficult people doing terrible things that registers grief and its distortions, how loss sometimes curdles into fury and hate or denial or delusion. Whiteness is the implicit and explicit specter that haunts the essay's proceedings, and Charlotte offers provocative and productive ways of reimagining the roots and routes of white supremacy in the 21st century United States. And yet the opening and closing essays in the collection highlight two radical singers and performers, Harry Belafonte and folk singer Lee Hayes. And these essays offer modicums of hope against the rising tide of fascism in the mid-20th century. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. Jeff Charlotte, welcome to Madison Bookbeat. Hi, Andrew, and thank you for that, that, that close, thoughtful reading. It was uh, it was a pleasure reading this. Uh, I, I had to read it in, in multiple sittings, to be honest. Uh, there were times that I did have to walk away from it, but there, there's so much here to, to, to dig into. And um, because our time is limited, let's go ahead and get right into it. Um, so based on your reporting for this book, is the United States currently experiencing civil war? Well, the term I use is slow civil war. And if you, I've been reporting on right-wing movements for, for 20 years. And um, I, I've actually been resistant to a lot of times when, and I, I, I come from a fairly you know, progressive left position, and that's open in my work. But I've been resistant to the idea when people used to say, oh, this president or, or, or this party is fascist and so on. Um, I, I'm aware of how slowly history moves until it doesn't. Um, and I think right now it's speeding up. And obviously, I think it began really accelerating on January 6th. 2021. And it wasn't long after that, that a group of uh, scholarly historians sort of said, we are now closer to civil war than uh, we have been since the civil war. Well, historians are actually pretty cautious creatures. Um, and that's why I set out to sort of explore this. And I've come to the conclusion or, or, or the feeling, I guess, that what we're in right now is what I describe as a slow civil war. Um, and 
you see it in the weekly skirmishes between an armed standoff is standoffs between you know people with ar-15s men with ar-15s and defenders at at simple you know drag drag show story hours the endless threats against hospitals libraries and schools school boards becoming sites of violence that require police intervention uh, i'm a father of a a, a queer non-binary kid and and my child is you know slowly being criminalized made illegal in some ways and and many many states meanwhile we have uh women who are literally bleeding out dying uh for lack of access to uh, abortion care there are there are more some people hear about the big picture uh killings associated with QAnon, but they don't hear about all the kidnappings all the assault all the violence um and into this stew i would add also uh, of course, mass killings. And, and as we talk, I, I just am learning that there's been another school shooting in, in Nashville. Some of these, we speak of those as lone wolves, but having read those manifestos of Buffalo and El Paso and Christchurch, uh, we see them not working alone, but inspiring each other, building off each other, and designing their killings with the express purpose of leading to more killings. So we already have casualties. It's a slow civil war. It's not a full civil war. This isn't, this isn't, you know, the blue and the gray, and nor is it red dawn. It's not even, thank God, yet Northern Ireland. But unless we take real action, real steps, I do believe it is heading that way. Into into a, a more kind of full-scale, recognizable civil war as opposed to um, uh, kind of these maybe we'd call them like splinter cell or, or, or kind of um, fractured, fractured uh, ruptures. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Fault lines, I suppose. Fault lines, um, yeah. But I don't need, I wouldn't like to use splinter cells because that's just, I think too often for progressive folks, for liberal folks, it's really tempting to see uh, these kinds of ideas and this kind of violence as fringe. Um, but the reality is you and I on this radio show, we're the fringe. Tucker Carlson, the most popular host in the country, regularly hosting uh, what amount to calls to violence. That's that's the center right now. We're not we're not. the. I think there's a lot of people saying, well, can this stuff really hurt us um, as if we're still running the show? We're not. Um, I, I think uh, I don't think it's fringe. I think it's more than that. I do think that. I think a lot of people look at, I, I, I traveled a lot. I went to churches that are raising their own militias. Um, I've never seen that before, and I've been reporting from conservative churches for a long time. Um, uh, there in Wisconsin, in, in uh, Marinette, Wisconsin, I spent some time with a militia leader. Um, and all these guys are sort of laboring under an imagination of civil war in which their brave band of men goes out and fights, to which others, kind of sensibly say, yeah, well, good luck with that when you face the U.S. military. I agree. I think the danger of those people is that they are sparks. They are sparks of a conflict that figures like uh, Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, governors working to outpace one another self, looking for that thing that can bring them into a standoff with federal government or 2024 and uh, another contested election. A base commander doesn't know, they respect the chain of command, they just don't know where it begins, who actually is president. Then, as several retired generals have warned, uh, and, and I've seen from my own reporting in the past on the military, then you do face the prospect of something bigger and more horrifying. Uh, but even before then is just, yes, I think the slow, dimmer erosion of rights um, uh, terror in everyday life you you've mentioned that you've been you've been reporting on this for for you know over two decades now um is was january 6 2021 was that a watershed moment was that was that something that you were um, surprised by it, it it occupies quite a bit of time in the work were, were you were you anticipating something like that in 2016 and in kind of in the buildup to the, the 2020 election or for somebody who's been working on these types of ideas for so long, what, what surprised you? What, what shocked you? 
I think part of the way I do the work is uh, I do immerse myself in these worlds and try and understand them and see the current and direction. And yet I think it's essential as a writer, as someone who's trying to imagine, you know, how the world is working um, to allow yourself to remain always open to surprise, which sounds kind of lovely and like a children's book thing. I'm always open to wonder. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think where I, I, I write about the 2016 campaign in the book, um, partly because I was so frustrated with the way so many of my colleagues in the press covered it, the way I would go to rallies. And I saw the, the deep, deep right-wing religiosity and the transformation of religiosity taking a turn that, frankly, I thought conservative American evangelicalism couldn't take um, at those rallies. And my colleagues in the political press would just be sitting there tapping their phones because this wasn't, you know, this wasn't horse race politics. Um, uh, so even then I said, okay, this is something new. This is the kind of fascism that I've seen the American right support abroad uh, return home. This is the very fascism that I didn't think was possible on a full scale in the United States. I was surprised then. In January 6th, even before the election, there's a chapter in the book called TikTok, which is a QAnon uh, theme, and it includes a description of one particular Trump interview with the right-wing host, Laura Ingram, um, in which you can see Laura Ingram concerned because Trump has crossed over. No longer is he using, alluding to QAnon themes and conspiracy theories as a means of, uh, of, of collecting power. He seems to believe them himself. It's as if, I, I describe it as, you know, as if uh, uh, an internet hacker clicks on their own malware, a con man who buys his own, his own crooked deal. And uh, I think from that moment, I thought, oh, we are really hurtling forward. I thought there was a slow motion coup after the election. And I remember at the time, of course, arguing with, with uh, other colleagues who were traditional political reporters and said, that's hysterical. Then January 6, 2021. But I can't say that I said, told you so, because I was sitting there watching on my computer as we all were. I remember my wife was with our kids sledding, and I was texting. And I said, oh, my God, they're, they're, they're marching on the Capitol. They're, they're on the steps. They're inside. And then that very day, we saw the video of Ashley Babbitt, 35-year-old Air Force veteran, uh, leading a charge, climbing up to a broken window about to attack congressmen on the other side, members of Congress on the other side, and a Capitol Police officer shoots her. We see only his hands, uh, but we can see that they're a black man's hands, and she's a white woman. And from that moment, because I study American history and American myth, and because I'm an American infected by the kind of disease of, of the, the myth of whiteness as much as anyone else, uh, I knew what they were going to do with it. That's an old story. That's the lynching story. Um, and I think at that time, that's when really in some ways the book as it exists now began. I said, sure enough, within a couple of days, they were talking relentlessly about innocent white womanhood mm -hmm. uh, killed by a, a, a black man skulking in the shadows. And um, after that, I suppose... Maybe there are no more surprises. Um, you know that they're all in. And you you drew such a striking comparison um, because I think the the timeline from uh, the you know uh, George Floyd protests to when uh, Ashley Babbitt was was killed, and so you're talking about um, uh, I believe it was at Ashley Babbitt's uh, memorial service in Sacramento that there were. Um, there were Black Lives Matters protesters who were chanting Black Lives Matter, and then yeah. the, the the Ashley Babbitt crowd who was there, they started chanting back Ashley Babbitt, and so you had a very, um, uh, in in no uncertain terms, you you had a very you had a very strong kind of dichotomy between um, whiteness and particularly uh, you know violated white womanhood. Uh, pitted against, but almost as an equal against state-sanctioned violence against an unarmed black man. And so, Jeff Charlotte, so much of the undertow is about whiteness and white supremacy. And you, doc you document implicit and explicit appeals made on its behalf and how its logics develop and adapt over time 
forming new and surprising coalitions. It, a, a lot of the people that you were speaking to in this work that you were interviewing, um, it, it was it was black and brown people. It was a it was an in, it was an indigenous man. So I I would like to hear you talk a little bit more about like what did you learn about whiteness in the various contexts you were in? Because in some ways it seems to be harkening all the way back to to kind of 19th century racial logics, but then we're also seeing these kind of strange coalitions. So what were you learning about whiteness in these new contexts? And how did it shape your understanding of, of race or gender or class or, or, or education even? I mean, I think to the, you know, a lot of people like to frame the sort of the question of American authoritarianism or fascism or the far right now as this question of, is it, uh, race or class or gender? And the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Uh, this is the intersectionality of fascism. Uh, they have their own convergence. And I think you really rightly named something there that um, that I watched. I think the thing that I learned, I, I, I've long been sort of fascinated and horrified by the myth of whiteness. Um, uh, for instance, uh, the 1915 film, The Birth of a Nation, um, which is the template for so much of Hollywood by D.W. Griffiths, right? This is, this is one of the most famous movies in, in, in world history, in American history. It's based on a novel called The Klansman, and they mean the Klan, and it's a positive novel, and it's about a white woman who leaps to her death rather than be ravaged by a black man, and then uh, the, the righteous uh, vengeance of uh, her death um, uh, by by Klansmen, right? So, I mean, that's, that's Oh, yeah, it's there. The, the, the glorious that's... charge at the end of the movie, right? That the Klan comes right yeah. in, right? Yeah. And yeah. then, and then yeah. this, film had, mean, the, you know, this like, film had the seal of... Like, you of go a... see Braveheart, you're watching echoes right. of, 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 you know, you watch any action movie, you're wa watching echoes of, of uh, Birth of a Nation. So these stories are always there. And I think, I think, you know, what you ask, like, what I learned about whiteness, and you talked about the sort of the strange diversity of some of these spaces at the the Justice for Ashley rally in Sacramento, California. Um, I don't know, third half people of color, uh, a black Second Amendment speaker, uh, George Riley, who describes himself as a Native American French-speaking Jew, Iroquois and Blackfoot, invaded the Capitol uh, wearing what he described as war paint. And his, his great grievance is that... Um, uh, the man who put his boots on uh, Nancy Pelosi's desk gets all the attention when he pulled down his pants and rubbed his his uh, his radio his his uh, his backside on uh, Nancy Pelosi's desk. Um, I would go to militia churches, and on average, they are more diverse than um, a lot of liberal churches. So, what's going on here? Does this mean they're not racist? Not at all. It's what. It's what my friend Anthea Butler, great, great historian, and a book called White Evangelical Racism, which is a short little book. And if you want to understand that, this is my problem with book promotion. I always tell you people to buy other people's books. Um, White Evangelical Racism by Anthea Butler, terrific book. And she calls it the promise of whiteness. And the promises of whiteness is the idea that you're speaking to people of color who have suffered under white supremacy and holding out to them this possibility it's almost like they can become white if they subscribe to this, this uh, ideology. And I think I describe it in the book as America's latest contribution to fascism. And that's important because, as I also note, uh, the Third Reich, uh, the actual Nazis, studied American race laws and, in fact, rejected some of them as too, too extreme for their program. Um, so there's always been that, that back and forth. But the latest contribution is this idea of it's it's you know what the latest, here's a great example from the news recently Nikki Haley, a woman of color, uh, running for the Republican uh, um, nomination, governor of South Carolina, famous for taking down the Confederate flag, um, but to run in the GOP now means to run within Trumpism, whether whatever you think of Trump, recently claimed ninety percent of American kindergartners are under, that's her term, under critical race theory, being taught to hate white people. That's a plain old white supremacist lie. Mm -hmm. that, that could be the Ku Klux Klan. And it's coming to us from Nikki Haley, 
a woman of color. That doesn't make it unracist. It doesn't make it not white supremacist. It shows the gravitational force, the gravitational power of the white supremacy at the heart of fascism, holding out this promise of whiteness. Uh, here, you can, you can join. Um, and I think that's really, frankly, one of the maybe the most frightening things I encountered in the book. It, it reminds me of the, the recent uh, murder of Tyra Nichols um, by, by four police officers who were all, who were all African-American and he himself a, an, an, an African-American man. And so there, it seems like that there is a way in which, um, in which white supremacy and, and state, state sanctioned violence uh, can, be, can, can almost seem colorblind, and yet it is still, it is still operating on, on the same basic logics of, of, as you're saying, these kind of classic, these classic white, white tropes. Well, you, you mentioned colorblindness, and that's something that, that I think I ended up sort of writing about that in the context of this Justice for Ashley rally that I went to in Sacramento, California turned into a brawl between Proud Boys and Antifa. But before that, you had a number of speakers making this sort of move uh, in which they would conflate the insurrection with Martin Luther King Jr.'s March on Washington. And, and maybe if I just read a couple sentences here, I'll say it more succinctly yes, than, I, than I could otherwise. To a colorblind crowd, and, and colorblind is in quotes, the implicit equation was one of themselves with the formerly enslaved. Black becomes white, white becomes the oppressed. Just as white people took the land from indigenous people and then named themselves their victims, so too has whiteness always been a means of claiming the suffering it inflicts on others as its own. White grievance, white justification, the nation not so much fallen as falling, forever in peril, forever in need of redemption, all these forevers overlapping to create the image of an innocence that never was. And there are open white supremacists on the right, um, but I think it's the rhetoric of colorblindness that actually makes if, – if the current fascist movement was limited only to uh, explicit white supremacists, uh, it wouldn't have the power that it has to, to signal more broadly. When social movements become strong, it's when they are drawing on a number of streams – a convergence of tributaries, many of which might not even agree with one another. So, for instance, we have um, you do have Klansmen uh, in the contemporary right. You also have the Catholic right. Don't forget, the Klan hates Catholics. Um, you know, you have you have Candace Owens, a, a black woman, and Nick Fuentes, an open uh, an open essentially a Nazi, an admirer of Hitler, um, all making common cause. Um, and I think I think that's that's something we have to contend with. And, and certainly for those listeners who, who, who find the idea of colorblindness appealing, uh, I think it's time for us to really recognize uh, the fundamentally white supremacist roots of that ideology. Your title of the collection seems to also be getting to this kind of underlying insidious experiences or logics that suggest kind of a strong or deep current below the surface of things. I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the title, The Undertow, uh, you know, something that pulls one along and has the potential to overwhelm or, or drown oneself. And what is the, what, what kind of traction were you getting with this metaphor of the undertow? Because at one point you said, you know, we, we lack a language that could encompass that we could encompass what this place, this land of stories was, what it is, and what it may become. And at one point you say, my, my metaphors are, are mixing. Yeah, the undertow is a, a, a metaphor that, that sort of started early. It, um, I was just sort of thinking that this is a way of describing, because I've been reporting on the right for so long, and I've seen some movements um, there's a couple of chapters in the book that I think of as sort of the pre-Trumpocene. There's one, on, for instance, on a group called MRAs, Men's Rights Activists. Um, these are people who believe that men are really the oppressed class in society. Um, and, you know, I've been to so many right-wing groups, and usually they're more complex than, than their caricature. This is the only one that was already actually dumber than his caricature. <laughs> Uh, I went to their convention in Detroit, um, and their character is pretty dumb. Um, there are real issues. We could talk about men's suicide rates and incarceration, and there are questions about custody. Instead, you know, 
they want to sit around and complain about ex-wives and ex-girlfriends and very importantly girlfriends they never had but feel that they were owed um and back in you know back before trump when i was uh uh spending some sort of very toxic time with these guys they were the only ones talking about terms like red-pilled um now we have ivanka trump and elon musk bragging to each other that they are red-pilled we have Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson, you know, sort of winning the hearts and minds of just millions of young men. Um, that's the undertow, this current just sort of pulling us outward. So I had that metaphor. And then as I was driving across the country, I, I, I decided to follow the ghost of Ashley Babbitt across the country, talking to people, just following an insurrection trail, uh, uh, watching the martyr myth get formed. And so I just sort of drove without too much direction. But as I was coming up into Colorado, I was listening to Christian Right Radio, and I heard a preacher from Wisconsin, in fact, uh, talking, uh, telling a story uh, about he's at the beach and he's reading his Bible. And his wife says, is that our son's drowning? And he looks up and it is, and he runs into the uh, um, ocean. They've been pulled out by the undertow and he's trying to rescue them. He realizes he's been wearing his jeans and his jeans are weighing him down and the undertow is pulling him out too and his son's out. And then he stops the story. And you know, you know he survives because he's talking. He doesn't say whether his son survived. In fact, he tells you the undertow to him is like a message from God that you can't put your love for anything, including your own children, ahead of your love for God, which he defines as love for authority, right? And uh, it just, I mean, you know, I, I am alert to patterns. I, I don't believe in, in signs and wonders, but I am alert to patterns. And I've been thinking about this metaphor, and then there it was as I sort of wound my way up into the mountain canyons. And um, I said, yeah, that's, that's what we're in right now. We're, we're in the undertow, right? Pulling us out toward civil war um and we need to pay attention uh, the shore is getting further away um and we're going to need together i think to to rescue ourselves and that's where to me the metaphor has some some strength in helping us think okay wait a minute this is what's happening what do we need to do to save ourselves what is your insight on that where does this leave us I I'm not interested in the thing where we sort of say, wait, how do we, how do we bring these people back? How do we convert yeah. these people? And let me give you an example. You know, I mentioned I have a, 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 a queer child, right? And for instance, where I live, uh, uh, my, my kids uh, live in Vermont. My kids go to school in New Hampshire. Um, we're a, a, a twin state school district, public school district. And our school district uh, seems to be about to be sued by a wealthy family. Um, that really wants to push back on its queer tolerance, right? Um, so if I go to them and I say, ah, you know, let me just talk with you guys. Let me just, you know, try and show you reason. It's not going to work any more than if they come to me. And these are educated folks. I teach at Dartmouth College. They're Dartmouth grads. Um, it's not going to work if they come to me and say, uh, let us just explain to you why, you know, your kid's identity is a problem. You're not going to convert me. I don't, think, I don't think evangelism, left or right, is the answer. I think building democracy, making beautiful things is the answer. And that's why I begin and end the book with, as you said, with these uh, bookended with these, these singers, right? Harry Belafonte. You, you open up your book about slow civil war and you find Harry Belafonte, you know, the banana boat song. And you're like, what is going on here? What's this guy got to do with this? I was definitely scratching it's, my head. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I, I yeah, kept yeah, reading yeah. though, but yeah, I, I, I was like, thank yeah. you. Thank you. You know, and I, and I sort of, and I'm, and I'm grateful to Norton for letting me do it too, because sort of like, you know, there's gotta be some calculator somewhere by like how many book sales am I going to lose? Because uh, people say, what? I don't get it. <laughs> Put it down. That's all right. Because those who do get it will encounter this hope at the beginning and this man who has long been in the struggle who has been his reputation sanded smooth by time but in fact is a man of deep radical imagination whom even his most famous song deo the banana boat song he understood as a radical work song they like come and they want to go home a song he learned on the docks in jamaica a song about getting free and here's a man who bankrolled the civil rights movement one of martin luther king's closest allies um, 
has been in it for a long time. He's in his 90s now, and he's as angry now as he was then. And anger is part of it, you know. Anger is part of it. And he is not filled with any false hope. He doesn't say, wow, we fought the civil rights movement and we won, because he knows that they didn't. The struggle is long. I don't have the solutions. What I can do is look to figures like Harry Belafonte, or at the end of the book, an even more forgotten figure, Lee Hayes uh, of the Weavers, um, uh, Pete Seeger's songwriter, um, uh, real radical hero in his day, also defeated, broken by the House Unaffairs American uh, House American uh, Un-American Affairs Committee, which is predecessor to the committee that Congressman Jim Jordan has right now, interrogating people, and. We can look to these guys and remind us that this struggle is long, that the, the work of – it's not – the way I sort of think about this, and, and it always sort of bugs me when I hear someone say, how do we preserve democracy? Or we used to have a democracy. The language gets me. I'm a writer. The language gets me. Preserve democracy? We're going to put it in a jam jar? Have a democracy? It's not something you have. It's not something on the shelf. It's something you do. It's something we're still trying to do. Harry Belafonte and Lee Hayes tried. They didn't succeed, and they are stronger souls than me, right? But it doesn't mean it means it's an ongoing process. So my solution and my hope, and I do think there's hope in the book, and I try and sort of thread some beauty through it, right? Wherever I go, I found some countercurrents. I think about there's a chapter about a church in Miami, uh, Vu Church, and this is like a a hipster Christian right church. Everybody at this church is gorgeous, beautiful, super stylish. It's in a very poor neighborhood, but don't worry, they've got cops to keep the poors out, just beautiful people. And it was the most empty, soulless church I'd ever been to. Um, but, and they didn't, they wanted to stage manage everything. They even said that, they said, let's just stage it. That's what they understood church to be. This is a man, he was the pastor who married Kanye and Kim He's Justin Bieber's pastor. You know, mm-hmm. this is where he's at. They wanted to control everybody I spoke to. Uh, and I ended up speaking to a member of the church, a young man, Brandon, who was like a holy fool, a holy fool in the best sense. And the church kept talking about the city of God, but they never said what it was. And it had not, seemed to have nothing to do with the actual Miami, the actual suffering there. But Brandon, Brandon, well, first thing we do in the city of God is we cancel all the debt. And then... Uh, we make sure everybody's got enough work, but not too much work, because they've got to have time to be with each other. And if we share the work, we can do that. And and we make sure that things like test scores and even IQ and 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 or how strong you are, that's not how you measure a person. You just measure a person. You know, he gave a very basic, I suppose, old-fashioned Christian message, but it wasn't the message the church wanted to hear. In fact, when they saw him talking to me, they came running and got in the way. But that's where you can find, I mean, he also gave the same story, the same answer that Harry Belfani or Lee Hayes might, or the folks that occupy Wall Street. I put a chapter in there about them mm-hmm. too. So one of those countercurrents where people imagine something radically different to be in the book. Um, and, and you find them even in the most empty soulless church in America, you find uh, someone who is dreaming uh, dreaming of a beloved community, to borrow from, uh, you know, scriptural language, uh, and to secularize it and uh, make that our own. Make it something that we can, as Harry says, you make it your own and then you give it away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it was fascinating to read that, and I couldn't help but not think as I as I was reading all these different encounters that as you were moving through these various environments, I was trying to imagine like what was the visceral like bodily experience like because it seemed like that there were moments where if i was reading correctly it seemed like that um given your own health condition as as well as just the the context and 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 the situation that there were moments where you genuinely feared bodily harm but then there were other moments of kind of surprising little moments of affinity or connection that uh that maybe we wouldn't expect given given the context. So could you just speak to that a, a little bit more, just the, the, the visceral experience of doing this kind of reporting when so often uh, just the presence of your notebook and your pencil 
really really triggered a lot of a lot of far right people. Yeah, there's a there's a line from a, a poem uh, called "The Testing Tree" by the poet Stanley Kunitz that I really love. Uh, In a murderous time, the heart breaks and breaks and lives by breaking. And for me, this is fairly literally true. Um, uh, I'm I'm 50 now. At 44, at a young age, I had uh, two heart attacks, right, back to back. Uh, And it changed my life. And what was interesting, but as as I'm traveling around talking, uh, uh, a broken heart opened some doors in surprising ways. I think of uh, some time I spent with a QAnon adherent named Diane G., very smart woman. Um, but had been gone down that rabbit hole. She had been involved in doing uh, good works in Haiti with a, a sort of an, a kind of orphanage there. And then she had seen terrible things happen um, following the Clinton plan. And she's not wrong about that, by the way. That was, that was the Clinton plan for Haiti was so badly mismanaged that even Clinton himself called it a devil's bargain. But Diane lacked the structural language um, with which to describe it. So she turned to the language of her church and the Foursquare Gospel, and she saw it as satanic in that letter to QAnon. But she too had had chart trouble. And I remember we were sitting there in a parking lot after a Trump rally, late, late at night, everybody gone, and she's somehow that came up. And it allowed us, I'm not crazy about the phrase common ground. I think of, you know what, the plantation is common ground, right? Um, there are still power relations there but allowed us a little bit of recognition. We're not all the same. But at the same time, you, you talked about the notebook and the pencil. Church in Omaha, Nebraska. Maybe the scariest moment I've had in, 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 in all my years of reporting. And, you know, I've been on the wrong end of a gun more than once and in more than one country. But this was the first time that I ever thought, this is way more than posturing. This is I can't believe this is happening at a, at a, a little mini mega church uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, war church. They believe war is coming. They are looking forward to it. They are armed. They believe Psalm 23, uh, thy rod and thy staff that comfort me. Thy rod, they say, explicitly means that gun. Um, and they wouldn't let me talk to anyone in the church. So I was talking to some folks outside in the parking lot, people who weren't even members of the church like me. They'd been visiting and an usher and a gunman in full tactical gear, all black. Uh, I thought he was a cop, but he was not. He was more of a militia guy. They came over and they told me I wasn't allowed to talk about God with anybody around here, that that was a topic they owned. And I'd never had this experience. In the past, writing about the right, um, people would always welcome you. They'd say, it's no accident you came here. They always believed you were gonna be converted. Or even if you weren't converted, the words were such that uh, somehow they would transmit magically through what you wrote. Um, this time, you're a journalist. The, the pastor had already preached against me. Um, you're the devil. That's it. And um, I kept saying, but you brought a man with a gun, and I brought a, a, a pencil. and holding up my pencil as if this was going to prove some point. And finally, the usher just steps forward, and he says, how do you know I don't have a gun? And I ran, you know, I was 90 degrees. My heart was beating. I'd sworn to myself after those heart attacks, not to get in these situations before. And I just turned and left. And I, as I drove away, I was thinking that's kind of the American question now. How do you know I don't have a gun? Concealed carry, open carry, 393 million guns in civilian hands in this country. Um, we are armed to the teeth. And we are, as so many of the militia guys I spoke to, we are ready. Um, That, to me, is frightening. Mm. You're listening to Madison Bookbeat. Um, I'm your host, Andrew Thomas. And today we are speaking with Jeff Charlotte about his uh, new book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, published this past March by Norton. Jeff, I'd love uh, to have you read one more passage for us, and then I want to talk uh, specifically about uh, Wisconsin, because one of your chapters focuses uh, entirely on the state of Wisconsin. But uh, if you wouldn't mind reading the passage that we discussed on uh, yeah. on, on, on 165. 165, yeah. Yeah, yeah this is um, uh, sort of pausing and thinking uh, at the Justice for Ashley Babbitt rally in Sacramento, California, which uh, in the front... Ashley's mother was leading chants of Ashley Babbitt trying to drown out chants of Black Lives Matter. And in the back, um, Proud Boys, 
disguised as sort of another gang called the Saviors uh, were brawling with uh, Antifa. And I was thinking about what brought all these people into this into this world. And I, I know something about that. Such victims, because they do feel themselves as, as victims, such the, the white folks and the fascists and the people who don't think of themselves as fascists, but, but have fallen into that rabbit hole. Such victims feel themselves drawn together, not by whiteness, but by that of which it is made, by their belief in a strong man and their desire for an iron fist in God and the love of the way guns make them feel inside and the grief over COVID-19 and their denial of COVID-19 and their loathing of systemic as descriptive of that which they can't see, can't hold in their hands and weigh, and their certainty that countless children are being taken, stolen, and raped, or if not in body, then in spirit, indoctrinated to hate themselves. They're angry about their own bodies, about how other people's bodies make them feel about eating too much because they're afraid they won't have enough, about not having enough, about others having more. They are drawn together by their love of fairness, which is how it used to be. They're certain they remember. Or if they're too young, they've been told. Or maybe they've all just seen it in a movie, a Western or a space opera or a revenge fantasy, the forever frontier that is equal parts Little House on the Prairie and The Punisher make America great again, the solace of tautology, a loop, a return, a story the end of which has already been written in the past. And yet, slavery, 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 murmurs the actual past. So they insist otherwise. They imagine otherwise. And imagine an imagination that draws curtains around its stage, it looks inward. So in your chapter, The Great Acceleration, um, you are specifically talking about your experiences interviewing people here in, in, in Wisconsin. So Wisconsin becomes the stage. And uh, if I remember correctly, the conceit was that you were a, a photojournalist going around just photographing um, uh, flags and, and, and other kind of like icons that you see as, as, a, as a way to, to talk, these, talk to these folks. So you're stopping at houses that are flying Trump's flags or Gadsden flags or F Biden or let's go Brandon. And as a swing state on well, the, well, yeah, I'm sorry. I should say, I should disagree. Uh, um, uh, not a conceit. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, it's a little bit. Some people say, well, why are you writing about Wisconsin? And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I could have written about this Vermont. Such flags are flying even here in the bluest of blue states near my home. I was in Wisconsin as I write because I brought my child to a residential program there. My child who was suffering uh, mental health uh, issues, mental illness. And so we'd gone to a program there. I was there. And I, when I couldn't visit them during the week, I would drive around. Um, and, you know, my last book was a photo book. I sort of go back and forth now. Um, so I was taking these photographs and then the conversations were happening. I wasn't sure then. Um, that this was a part of the book. In fact, I thought I was done with the book. Um, uh, but Wisconsin asserted itself. But so there's no conceit. And I, and I should say that to Wisconsinites, it's not that Wisconsin is, it, it, there are many special things about it, but it's not that I think there's more of this there than elsewhere. It's just where I was, um, where I found myself really being pulled out in the other toe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just the circumstances that, that, that you were in, and 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 I should say to to our listening audience as well that uh, throughout throughout the undertow there are um, there are quite a number of photographs, and the, the, these were all taken by you, correct? Uh, just about all. I mean, there's a film still from uh, uh, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, and from Busby Berkeley's Footlight Parade. There's a uh, a surveillance photo from Ruby Ridge, but um, right. yeah, the other photographs. Uh, are, are mine and I think it's it's part of you know I think about how to tell stories both in the present moment as a, as a, a, a literary journalist or creative nonfiction writer but also as like how do we tell stories about fascism which is among other things an aesthetic and a visual aesthetic 
Um, and that's a little bit why I was paying so much attention to the flags. I'm saying, look, how do we read this story? Just in the same way that I pay attention to movies. I thought it was important to read the stories that people are telling themselves. There's that famous Joan Didion line, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And I think it's often from her book, The White Elm. It's often misunderstood as, oh, isn't that wonderful? We tell her, we, I love stories. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. Um, Didion was of a dark sensibility. Um, that's neither here nor there in terms of virtue. Uh, it really depends on what kind of stories you're telling yourself. So when I see um, the in, in flying in Wisconsin, the all black flag, there's a flag that's the American flag, but it's all in shades of black. Um, it's not the Blue Lives Matter flag, which is black and white with a blue stripe. It's all black. And it, the flag means no mercy, uh, no quarter. The Civil War is coming. And when it does, take no prisoners, prisoners, kill them all, which is to say, I think it is fair to call it a genocide flag. When I see that flying in Wisconsin or in Vermont, I have to ask myself um, what story is being told by the image as well as the words. So as, as, a, as a swing state on the, on the cusp of a state Supreme Court election, and I should remind all my listeners to please vote yeah. tomorrow, Tuesday, April 4th. Uh, it, it is voting day. Uh, or it is, yeah, it is voting day here in Wisconsin tomorrow. Um, uh, your chapter, The Great Acceleration on Wisconsin, it seems particularly charged in its ability to give insight to the political and ideological divisions that kind of playing out on the national stage. In the, in, 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 in the time that we have left, could you just kind of ruminate a little bit on like, was there anything that you learned specifically about your time in Wisconsin that you weren't seeing in your other travels, is 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 there something is there something unique to Wisconsin? Is there something that uh, Wisconsin does particularly different than other states that it's putting a microscope over? I think I think Wisconsin is is, is you know and, and in the context of that Supreme Court decision, because Wisconsin is you know uh, maybe a blue state or, or or a purple state, but certainly not um, as it became uh, after the fall of Roe. Uh, an abortion no exception state reverting back to 1849 law um you know uh, i i love the progressive history of vermont uh, or <laughs> vermont i like that too um not <laughs> vermont's history is not as progressive as wisconsin um and and i think that's really heartening but of course it's also a gerrymandered state and i think wisconsin should be sort of a warning sign to everybody especially those who say well it's bad, but these people are getting older and America is getting more diverse. So, you know, the numbers will just take care of it. Fascism has always been a minoritarian movement, as it is in Wisconsin. A, a smaller number of Wisconsinites uh, are controlling that whole legislature. And um, that's the threat that can happen uh, to everybody. So I think that that's a specific thing. But I also think, um, uh, you know, there's some kids I met in Black River Falls, Wisconsin. And, you know, I was carrying with me a copy of Wisconsin Death Trip, um, which is a book I've known for 30 years by Michael Lesset. He was my teacher. Um, uh, a book about Black River Falls in the 1890s, um, the small town that was beset, as many towns were in the 1890s, with all kinds of afflictions. And uh, some Wisconsinites Wisconsin, hate the book as, as they say, why do you have to focus on the negative? In fact, I see the book as weirdly hopeful. We recognize it's another book about the long struggle. It's a memento mori, a reminder that we all die, that these crises we're encountering, we've encountered before. And so I went to the town of Black River Falls where the book was, uh, where the book took place. And, um, uh, and I, I drive in and the first thing I see on the bridge over the Black River is this group of young women and queer kids standing uh, with their signs. This is right after the fall of Roe. And my favorite was a sign I cannot say on the air. It was uh, a, a young woman named Peyton, a cheerleader for the uh, Black River Falls Tigers. And her sign said, and I say F off, her sign said F off, right? Uh, except um, not so polite because she wasn't feeling polite. And that was directed at me, at, at my generation, at the older folks who had failed to protect the rights that uh, 
she needed uh, so that she's coming into a world where her circumstances are increasingly uh, uh, bound, right? She was angry. She was angry. She said it means rage. And she had a whole gang of young people. These were not, forgive me, these were not Madison radicals. They, they saw Madison as the big city, as it wonderfully is. I love Madison. But Madison was a distant place for them. Um, they're small town folks, but they believed that the struggle was coming and they believed they were going to have to fight it. And I hope they don't have to fight it with violence. No one wins a civil war. There are no winners in a civil war. Um, but I took great heart. Here I was in small town, Wisconsin, um, and this group of kids, and we ended up eating late night waffles and pancakes at Perkins with one of their moms. And they're talking about the long struggle. They're speaking the same language as Harry Belafonte in 1963, but you know, it's, it's almost 2023 and, and, and they're just a group of kids, um, but they see it and they have the imagination and the heart uh, to carry it forward. So uh, there I go, to carry it forward. Uh, as a non-Wisconsinite, I feel, I feel I'm allowed to sort of use cheesy Wisconsin um, <laughs> cliches like forward. Um, uh, yeah, that's Wisconsin is both, I think right now, the tragedy of American democracy, but also embedded within its past, which is not gone, um, is not fully down and out, uh, is also some of the hope. Well, I think we will, we will try and end the show today then on that hopeful note. Um, today we've been in conversation with Jeff Charlotte on his collection of essays, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, published in March by Norton and available wherever books are sold. Jeff, it's been such a pleasure having you on Madison BookBeat. Thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate your, your, your thoughtful questions and, and talking with you. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you've been listening to Madison Bookbeat, and I'm your host, Andrew Thomas. Thanks to our receptionist, Amy, talk producer and sound engineer, Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director, Shelley Pittman. The intro and outro music was written and performed by Alex Frizzell. Coming up next is Three Hours of Jazz with Alex Wilding White. Keep it here on WORT 89.9 FM Madison, and take care. <laughs>